0: A couple weeks ago, we talked about Jesus being the Good Shepherd, and we referenced the fact, as we looked at John chapter 10, with Jesus as a Good Shepherd, that Jesus was speaking to the Pharisees, who were there listening to him at the end of John chapter 9. He had just healed a blind man, and they were so upset that Jesus healed this blind man on the Sabbath day. And so, as Jesus is talking to the blind man, it, it mentions at the end of John chapter 9 that a couple of the Pharisees were there. And they want to know, are you talking to us, Jesus? And Jesus goes in in John chapter 10 with the discussion that he is the good shepherd. And that would have really wakened them up, I believe, because they were experts in the law. And they could imagine Ezekiel chapter 34 that talks about the shepherds of Israel and how they had abused their leadership, their role of leadership. And the Pharisees were those that had set themselves up as being the shepherds of the people. Yes, you had priests that were working in the temple. But most people looked to the Pharisees and they looked to the scribes as being the wise teachers of Israel. And so here they were, spiritual leaders of Israel. As we come to Mark chapter 2, Jesus confronts that leadership. Jesus confronts religion, if you will. I want us this morning to think about Jesus as he confronts religion in Mark chapter 2, down through about chapter 3 and verse 6. I want us to look at four examples that Jesus speaks to these Pharisees as religious frauds. And I want us to think about how, if we're not careful, maybe sometimes in our lives, We become religious frauds. Let's notice what Jesus has to say to these Pharisees in Mark chapter 2. A different context from that which we spoke about in John chapter 10. But nonetheless, he's speaking to Pharisees and scribes. Notice what Jesus says. He's going to talk about four types of religious frauds. Notice what he says, first of all, number one, Mark chapter 2 and verse 1. When he came back to Capernaum several days afterwards, it was heard that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no longer room, not even near the door. And he was speaking the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. Being unable to get him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had dug an opening, they let down the pallet on which the paralytic was lying. And Jesus, seeing their faith, said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. But some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, Why does this man speak this way? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately Jesus, aware in his spirit that they were reasoning that way within themselves, said to them, Why are you reasoning about these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, "Your sins are forgiven," or to say, "Get up, pick up your pallet, and walk." But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority to, on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, "I say to you, get up, pick up your pallets, and go home." And he got up immediately, picked up the pallet, and went out in the sight of everyone. So that all were amazed and were glorifying God, saying, We have never seen anything like this. As we look at this story, Jesus here encounters this man that's brought to him. He's a paralytic, and Jesus heals him. But it happens to take place on the Sabbath day. And we're introduced to the idea that there are some scribes that are present. They witness this healing. Now, the scribes and the Pharisees were not always necessarily the same group. But many of the scribes, people who had, by occupation, the training, the responsibility, the education, the job of taking the Old Testament scriptures and copying them down, they could sometimes do other things, but primarily, if you're a scribe, that's what your job was. And most of the scribes belong to the religious political sect known as the Pharisees. And so oftentimes you see them listed together, scribes and Pharisees. But here you have scribes. And they see Jesus healing this man on the Sabbath day. And they're upset. They can't believe it. This man is doing work in their minds on the Sabbath day. And they're upset about it. And yet these men, because they were scribes, were experts in the Old Testament law. They knew everything that Moses had written in the Pentateuch. They also, if they were Pharisees, believed in the Old Testament prophets as being inspired by God, looking for a Messiah. And so that when they hear Jesus say, Or they're upset, rather, that Jesus says your sins are forgiven. When they hear Jesus say, your sins are forgiven, oh, that sets them over the edge. And they say, this man is blaspheming because no one can forgive sins except God. Bingo! You got it. This is the Messiah. This is the one that Isaiah speaks about in Isaiah uh, chapter 9. And, and, and other passages in Isaiah when he talks about he, him being the, the, the son of God or being known as God Almighty. And these guys were experts in the law, but you see, they missed it. And so Jesus says, so that you can know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins... I'm going to heal them. And he asks them the rhetorical question, what is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven? Or to say to a paralytic, pick up your palate and walk? It's easier to speak the words. Even if they are meaningless, your sins are forgiven. But to tell someone, pick up your palate. You've been born with the inability to walk all your life. To speak to that one, that person and say, pick up your pallet and walk, that's difficult. I can't show you that your sins are forgiven. There's no way to demonstrate that unless God's here and says, I forgave this person the sins. But to be able to show someone who's never been able to walk to get up and walk, that says something. And so what Jesus is doing here is he's saying, yeah, anyone can say your sins are forgiven, but so that you can know that when I say it, it happens. Man, pick up your pallet and walk. Go home. And the man stands up, picks up his pallet and goes home. But you see, even then, they dismissed Jesus. Now think about what this means in terms of being a religious person. These were men who were experts in the law. These were men that the Jewish community looked to as teachers of the law. These were people. They knew all the Old Testament Bible stories. They knew what the prophets said. They knew that it talked about a Messiah that could heal the infirm. Isaiah chapter 53. And all through Isaiah, the great book of prophecy that all were looking forward to or were familiar with, looking for that Messiah. And they had all of these things in their mind and yet they missed it. The one that these passages was, was talking about or that were talking about was standing right there with them and they missed it. because they were those whose hearts had grown cold. They were more concerned about holding their place, perhaps, as of the day. Or at the very least, that from all of Scripture, as we think about the Pharisees and scribes and what the Gospels say, we draw that conclusion. But at the very least from this text alone we see that their hearts had grown cold. Those Old Testament scriptures they were so familiar with them that it didn't register that this was the Messiah that all of Israel was looking for. I wonder as Christians today sometimes we become so complacent in Scripture that we miss what's right in front of us. Sometimes we become so complacent in the Scripture, so comfortable with the Scriptures, so familiar with the Scriptures, that when we have an opportunity to reach someone who is looking for Jesus, that we miss what is right in front of us. sometimes we become so comfortable with just walking into a building and sitting down in a pew or just living our lives as a Christian thinking, I've got it made, although we never tell ourselves I've got it made, but maybe we do just kind of think about it in those terms. That our hearts grow cold. These men were religious frauds not because they lacked education, not because they lacked an understanding of Scripture, but because they had it and they became so cold they missed the obvious. When they said, no one can forgive sins but God alone, and Jesus says, bingo. Let me demonstrate that I am he. That phrase, son of man, comes from Daniel chapter 9 in which one, like the Son of Man, is coming to God the Father to receive a kingdom. Jesus wasn't just saying, I'm a guy that's hanging out here in Jerusalem. He's saying, I am the one of Daniel chapter 9 who's coming to receive a kingdom from God and to sit in the presence of God at his right hand. And they missed it. As we come down through a text, we find... Not only were they religious frauds because they had hearts grown cold, but because they were too good to reach out. Notice Mark chapter 2, verse 13 following. And he went out again by the seashore, and all the people were coming to him, and he was teaching them. As he passed away, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at, in the tax booth. And he said to him, Follow me. And he got up and followed him. And it happened that he was reclining at the table in the house, and many tax collectors and sinners were dining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many of them, and they were following him. And when the scribes and Pharisees saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, they said to his disciples, Why is he eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners? And hearing this, Jesus said to them, It is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. And so again, here we encounter the Pharisees and the scribes. And they see Jesus as He's having an impact in the lives of tax collectors and sinners. Now notice it says tax collectors and sinners. Because the Pharisees, remember I said, were a, a religious political sect. And so they believed... As a religious political sect or political party in Jerusalem, in Judea, that they needed, the nation needed to be separated from everyone who is not a Jew. That's one of the big differences between the Sadducees and the Pharisees, as religious political parties of first century Judea, first century Judea and Jerusalem. And so they looked at anyone who had anything to do with the Roman government as being a traitor to the nation and not being religiously pure. And so the way you became a tax collector or operating a tax booth in first century Roman Empire was that you got a license. You paid the Roman government to let you have that job. And so you would collect all the money that the Roman government expected to get as people traveled down that road. So you think about George Bush Turnpike. If you were living in first century Jerusalem, you would have a contract. You would pay the Roman government to get the lease to operate the toll booth on George Bush Turnpike. And every time you saw a car coming by, you would stop the car, you would inspect the car to see what was inside the car and the valuables in the car. You would assess, and you would say, this is how much money I'm going to tax because you're coming through this toll booth and we're carrying these goods. Imagine a semi-truck driver coming through. Man, they'd really soak them good. But you see, the Pharisees looked at those folks as being impure because they had a contract with the Roman government. So they automatically assumed, if you're a tax collector, you must be a sinner. And then there were those folks that they did know sin. And, and, and there was some for that because a lot of folks, the Roman government didn't say, a bag of oranges is worth five cents. You've got to charge them five cents. They just said, we expect you to collect X amount of dollars, and anything you get beyond that, that's your profit. And there is no standard of assessment, so you just assessed what you wanted to assess. Can you see how people would take advantage of that situation? And so, you automatically get to a position where you just assume, well, those guys are crooked anyway. No one in this room would ever talk about the government being crooked, right? No one you know that you ever associate with would ever talk about there being corruption in politics, right? We would never do that. But you see, that's how the Pharisees saw tax collectors. And so when they see Jesus eating with tax collectors and other people that apparently were living in sin, they say, what is he doing? If he's supposed to be a great teacher, if he's supposed to be a great prophet, he needs to be eating with us. You see, they were religious frauds because they weren't interested in reaching out to the lost to help them come back to God. They were interested in their position in society, the way they were respected in society. And so Jesus says to him his great statement, someone who's healthy does not need a physician. The Son of Man came to heal the sick or to reach out to those that need healing if we look at the text again and we see exactly what Jesus says here in verse 17 he says it is not those who are healthy who need a physician but those who are sick I did not come to call the righteous but sinners they were religious frauds because they were complacent in their position not interested in reaching the lost not concerned for the lost and sometimes we too today are so complacent, so comfortable, so self-righteous that we forget our mission of seeking the lost. Religious frauds because they had hearts grown cold. Religious frauds because they failed to seek the lost. But as we look at this, we also see that they had their own idea of their self-righteousness. Notice chapter 2, verse 18. John's disciples and Pharisees who were fasting, or were fasting they came and and said to him why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast but your disciples do not fast and Jesus said to them while the bridegroom is with them the uh, the attendant of the bridegroom cannot fast can they so long as they have the bridegroom with them they cannot fast but the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and then they will fast in that day they were so puffed up about their traditions of fasting. You know, if you look in the Old Testament, you don't find any mention of fasting in the Bible, in the Old Testament, except in the book of Esther. When Esther asks Mordecai to tell the people to fast while she, before she goes in to, to, to talk to King Xerxes. it's the only time to see fasting in the Old Testament. No command to fast. No, not, nothing about it in, in the Ten Commandments, nothing about it in the Old Testament law that the people should fast. There's nothing wrong with fasting, but it's just something that was never commanded in Scripture. But you see, these guys were so self-righteous that they said, look at us, how much we fast. And your disciples aren't even fasting. They were religious frauds because they were taking something that in their tradition, in their mind, made them holy, and they wanted to know, aren't you as holy as me? Aren't you as holy as us? Look how we fast. Look how our disciples fast. And you guys, you're out there eating Big Macs. Do we ever treat people as though we're righteous and they're not? Because in our mind, we do all the right things that make us good. We do all the things that make us righteous. They aren't necessarily in here. But we just think, oh, look how good we are. Imagine what might have happened in Judah of the day if the Pharisees had been willing to reach out to the lost and weren't so caught up in their own self-righteousness. They were religious frauds because their hearts had grown cold, because they failed to reach out, because they looked to their own self-righteousness. But finally, they were religious frauds because they placed man's authority, man's authority over God. Notice chapter 2, verse 23 following. It says and it happened that he was passing through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and his disciples began to make their way along while peeking the heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need, and he and his companions became hungry? How he entered the house of God in the time of Abathar the high priest, and ate the consecrated bread, which is not lawful for anyone to eat except the priest. And he also gave it to those who were with him. Jesus said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. For the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. And he entered again into a synagogue. And a man was there, whose hand was withered, and they were watching to see if he would heal them on the Sabbath, and so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Get up, come forward. And he said to them, Is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath day? To save life or to kill, but they kept silent. And after looking around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately began conspiring with the Herodians against him as to how they might destroy him. What is work? What is labor? The Old Testament spoke plainly, and it says, "On the Sabbath day, you shall do no work, neither you nor your son or your daughters, nor your maidservants. No one in your house should do work." But what is work? The Pharisees had to define what is work, and so they said, "Look, if if you go, if you walk more than one mile, that's work." Some of us want to make it shorter than that, right? But for the And if you walk more than a mile from your house, that is work. But oh, guess what? If you happen to leave your coat the day before, a mile away from your house, and you walk that mile to pick up your coat, and you walk a little bit further, that's okay. Because you left your coat there. It's a part of your house. Kind of like an insurance policy. That's part of your house, right? Okay? And and so they said, that's not work. They had all these rules defining what is work. I think some of you have been with me before when I've read... Uh, uh, from, the, from the Talmud where it talks about if you have a toothache and you take vinegar and suck it through your teeth as medicine that's work but if you happen to dip your bread in vinegar and eat it and it soothes your, your teeth well, that's not work because you're just eating now all these rules you see they had placed themselves in the seat of God to say this is God's word this is what we ought to do in fact they had a phrase that they used in antiquity Antiquity about the two pillars of the law, the law of Moses and the traditions of the fathers. They're not upset with Jesus because he's doing good. They're upset with Jesus because he's violating the traditions of the fathers, which said if you heal someone and you're a doctor, you heal someone and you're in the field of medicine, you're healing, you're working. And Jesus says the Sabbath day was supposed to be a day of rest. It was meant to restore people to rest. But you see, they placed their authority above God's. And sometimes today, we can do the same thing. We build up our traditions, we build up our ideas, and we sell them as gods. And when we do that, we are a religious fraud. Jesus confronts religion. Religion that is a religious fraud because of hearts grown cold, a failure to reach out, self-made righteousness, and defining our own authority. And if we're not careful today, we can fall into some of the same traps. Can we become experts grown cold? if we become so comfortable where we are spiritually that we fail to study or practice Christianity, if we fail to acknowledge the role and mission of the church and of Christians, if we are so delighted in our own perceived knowledge of Scripture or God that we feel like we don't need to come to Bible class or attend worship or serve in the church or serve God, maybe we have become experts. How many people do we know? That have been Christians for 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, 50 years, that they just come and sit a pad on a seat in a building somewhere. And there's nothing changed in their lives. Experts grown cold. Religious frauds, I dare say. Can we become too good to reach out? What about when we fail to look beyond the Sunday morning as an opportunity to, to reach the lost? So we, we expect the, the preacher to have just the greatest sermon so that everyone that's not there is somehow magically going to hear it and be Christian. And we think, that's evangelism. Meanwhile, we think all sorts of evil things about people that don't come to worship with us. When we fail to build relationships with those outside the church, with the community, when we would never dream of eating or associating with a relatively unclean person, sometimes we are acting as though we are too good to reach out. When all the activities of the church are geared at entertaining or serving ourselves, we might be too good to reach out. And we can fall in the trap of self-made righteousness, can't we? Whenever we set an expectation of this is a godly activity, this if you're a really good Christian, you're going to be doing this. If you're a really good Christian, you're not going to be doing this over here. And we build up this self-made righteousness just like those Pharisees who said, we're going to fast. Look at us, how great we are because we fast. That's self-made righteousness. Now, if you're someone who enjoys fasting or that helps you get close to God, I'm not saying don't do that, but what I'm saying is sometimes we... Look at this person. Look at all this stuff they do. They're so good. That's self-made righteousness. And we become a religious fraud, when that's the standard by which we live. Finally, can we place man's authority over God's? Anytime we fail to acknowledge Jesus' authority as head over the church or the authority of Scripture, we are. Anytime we place our desire above what God commands us, we are becoming our own authority. Anytime we refuse to follow and trust God or Jesus and go on our own path, we are creating our own authority. We need to be very, very careful that we open this book. We read what the early church did. We read what the early church apostles wrote as inspired men. And we let that guide us in what we do. And we not go beyond that one way or the other. We need to rely on the authority of God and the authority of Scripture and let that guide us. When Jesus spoke about being the good shepherd, those Pharisees knew what he was talking about. He confronted them as religious frauds because they set themselves up as being the religious leaders, the spiritual leaders of the day, and yet they missed so many things because they were experts that had grown cold in their heart, because they refused to care about the lost sheep of Israel that needed to be restored, because they built themselves up as being righteous, more righteous than others because of the little traditional things that they did. And they even set themselves up as being the authorities more so than God by instilling their own authority and tradition. We don't want to be a church like that. We want to reach out in the community because we have a love for the community. We don't want to miss what's, behind, what's right before us because we become so complacent our hearts become cold. We certainly don't want to treat people like we are better than they are simply because of the little things we do. And we certainly never want to put ourselves in the place of God by making up things or doing things without or beyond his authority. Let us act with the love of God, the love of Christ, who was the good shepherd who was calling his sheep home. And let's, as his shepherds, his servants, continue his work and reach the lost today. If you're here today and you've heard the welcome call of Christ and you want to become a a member of his body, United in Jesus, in His death, burial, and resurrection, won't you come? As together we stand in.